This is Multinew Media. Hi, everyone. I'm Chase Raz, and this is episode 85 of Multinew Media. With me today is a guest who's never been on the show before, but he's a he's a wonderful guy, Garrett Albritton. How are you, Garrett? I am doing great, Chase. How are you today? I, I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm happy that Star Trek is back on television, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Awesome. I am absolutely thrilled that Star Trek is back on television. Before we jump into that, though, let me pace you there, because I'd like the audience to know who you are. So, Garrett, why don't you give a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Okay. Uh, well, I am a self-confessed nerd and geek. I am very proud to admit that on many, many different levels, Star Trek only being one of them, but probably the biggest piece of the puzzle. Uh, I am an employee at Full Sail University in Orlando, Florida. I'm also a three-time graduate of said university. I am a data scientist, and I love anything and all things to do with data. And uh, I, I've been told just in general an all-around fun person. I, I can confirm that. You are uh, an all-around fun person. And uh, we met, of course, at Full Sail University. You you work there. I work there. And that has uh, sparked a friendship. Not only that, but you were my you were one of my teachers in the Entertainment Business Bachelor's degree. I, I was. That was when I was teaching business technology and e-commerce. And uh, I've since moved on. Maybe going, by the way, I may be going back to the modern incarnation of that class. Awesome. Well, the students will only benefit from having you. Yeah. So what are your what are your specialties? This is a biz tech show, first and foremost. But so before we get to Star Trek, what are some of your specialties within data analysis? What what pulled you there and uh, what do you do within that field? Well, I've, I've always enjoyed data. I've always enjoyed understanding what the data is telling us, the story behind it and analyzing it for patterns and trends and looking for the hidden meanings inside it. I have been told that I am less of a data scientist and more of a data storyteller and philosopher. <laughs> I like and, that, data uh, philosopher. Yeah, I know. It's kind of neat. Huh? I'm still trying to piece out exactly what that means, but it sounds cool. Um, so what I do is not really on the statistical side of things. I mean, I, I deal with statistics, obviously, as you have to when you're dealing with data analysis. But for me, it's more about digging into uh, the underlying elements of the data. What is it that the data is telling us on the surface, but also what is it that it's kind of whispering to us from, uh, from the background? What might not be so obvious with it? What are all the elements that may have occurred in the real world around the data whenever it was being gathered that could have influenced that data and had an effect on it. So what does that mean? How do we interpret it? And then ultimately, the most important part in my mind of uh, dealing with data is how do I craft a story around that and then deliver that back to my stakeholders, whoever they may be, so that they can make the most effective decisions possible with that information. Now, without trying to make an overly relevant bad topical pun, it would almost seem like you're saying that context is everything. And the reason that's a pun is because context is king was one of the episodes of this new Star Trek show. But it really seems like that's what you're saying. It's not right. right we have the quantitative data and we can do that. Um, we can have computers do the processing for us is really what we do. We don't sit down with pencil and pen and do a lot of that work. But it's understanding the story that that data paints and that it tells. That's the real specialty that you have. 
Yeah, I would say so. That's a really good way to summarize that. All right. So I, I definitely would love to have you back on in the future. Normally, I say this stuff at the end, but I'd love to have you back on in the future and we can talk more about that. But what I'm curious about today, Garrett, is what does it mean? What's the story behind Star Trek? And I, before anyone thinks that we're going off in just a completely, you know, entertainment tangent here, uh, we are to some degree, but it impacts society, culture, business, everything. Look how many technological devices we have because Star Trek inspired someone. And we really want to explore whether this new Star Trek is going to inspire people yet again, a new generation, no pun on next generation, or are we just looking at yet another franchise creating yet another series? So I'm interested to get your initial take on what does it mean for Star Trek to be back? I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think you're going to get a different answer from every person you ask about it. For me, it's got a couple of different layers. The the first from the perspective of a fan is, man, I am excited that we get to watch Star Trek again every week. It's nice seeing those Holy pretty ships on TV. Is cool. <laughs> I am. I don't think I have been so excited to sit down in front of the TV at a specific time every week and watch a show for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, sure, it's streaming and I can watch it anytime I want or anything like that. But you know what? It got to 825 last night and I logged myself out of playing Overwatch specifically to sit down and watch Star Trek at the moment it was on so I could talk about it with other people afterwards. Yeah. Like this type of conversation right here. This isn't the only conversation that you and I are having about this show. And I would imagine that most people out there, even if they don't watch Star Trek, maybe they're into another franchise or maybe they don't like sci-fi at all. Uh, I, I can imagine that people are having these conversations, if nothing else, for what you mentioned uh, just a few moments ago. Star Trek is not even on. It's on television, but it's also on your mobile device. It's on your computer screen because it's not on broadcast television. It's on streaming through the Internet, CBS All Access only here in the United States and Netflix internationally. That's it's not a first, but that's definitely a first for an American broadcast network. It is, and it's. I think it's an interesting commentary by CBS on the direction that they feel that entertainment's going. If they felt they could get more out of Star Trek monetarily by putting it on the airwaves, you think they actually would, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I'm. I'm I am yeah. a little bit. I'm. I'm scratching my head about the value proposition a little bit. You know, I don't uh, get any ads and I only pay, what is it, 7 or $8 a month for ad-free or something like that. Yeah, it is only $7, $8 a month for ad-free, which is really, really nice actually, uh, especially considering all the rest of the content you get on the CBS streaming right, they, thing. They basically took all of my advertising revenue away from CBS for this one show. They did. And I'm, I'm curious about how they're ultimately monetizing it in the end. But I think in the, I think the long term, the long game that they have here with this – is that they want to see the same type of success that HBO has seen with Westworld and Game of Thrones mm. and that Netflix is seeing with their original series. And by putting it behind this streaming paywall, as people call it, it gives them a higher level of creative freedom and opportunity that they don't have when they are – put inside the rails of the FCC and other requirements that are, are put on television shows that are broadcast over the air. 
So they're allowed to do things with this they may not necessarily be allowed to do otherwise if they put it in the traditional venue. Well, that'll be interesting to see what happens as the years progress with the show to see if they do anything that um, they really wouldn't do. I mean, there have been a few moments maybe in the first handful of episodes, but nothing, you know, nothing quite HBO worthy. Right. Not quite yet. I think eventually they might get there. It's just going to take a little bit of time for them to ramp up to it. Mm. I mean, we have seen a few things in the first couple episodes already. And spoiler alert, I hope that everyone that has actually, you know, listened to this has watched the show so far. But, you know, we never would have on uh, broadcast television or in traditional Trek got things like the mention that, you know, the Klingons ate the dead. Right. Yeah. Uh, allusions to it, maybe, but never um, some of the direct quotes that, that we got in uh, episode four. If anyone's wondering where that is. Um, and, you know, Gene Roddenberry, when he was alive, tried with The Next Generation to make it a little bit cutty, uh, more cutting edge and edgier. And if anyone has, it's a great coffee table book. It's The Art of Star Trek. Uh, it's got to be from the early 2000s or about then. And it has a couple of shots of of models right before everything was CGI of models that were mocked up of, um, you know, shuttlecraft with dead crew members in it being torn apart by the Borg and this, that, and the other. And they tried, but they really couldn't get the show to go in that direction. And so this is, um, as a lot of people talk that this is in one way, a departure for the Star Trek series. And in another way, it's not that much of a departure because, Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this isn't this edgier vibe something that Deep Space Nine tried to do to some degree? Oh, it absolutely did, especially when you got to season three. So Deep Space Nine, basically season three through season seven, gets darker and darker and darker as the series goes on. Yeah. And it deals with really heavy topics that you're not going to find unless you're in a war scenario. And Discovery is clearly in a war scenario, and it's going to be dealing with those heavy topics, I think. So – for me, it's the discovery is more of the spiritual successor to DS9 than it is to anything else. Mm, that you know, which, that's interesting. I haven't heard that before. You know, which I actually like because I loved Deep Space Nine. It was really cool to see a different side of Starfleet and a different side of the Federation. It's that whole argument that's always been made amongst fans about Starfleet's uh, an exploratory organization and a science organization. So why do they have warships? Well. Starfleet's not just one thing or the other. I think we've seen that over the years, and we're getting that again here in Discovery, showing that Starfleet is a multi-role, multi-operational organization. They have to handle the policing. They have to handle the military aspects. They have to handle the diplomacy, the peace missions, and they have to handle the science. I think that's a great reflection on um, global politics. Too. It, it was in the 1960s and it is now. It's this idea of we want to be more. We want to remove the, the greed of the markets. We want to live for exploration. But at the same time, if you think there's, you know, if you think there's a um, no cost to going to a money free market with replicators or if you think there's no um, blood cost of going to a peaceful society, um I, I guess uh, Star Trek has always told us, whether it's directly or indirectly, that we're being naive if we believe that. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And then, you know, the other thing with thinking of the organization itself as a, a multi-role organization, 
is it goes back to the old school days of the exploration when Earth was still a mystery to us. As you think about what things like the British Navy were, they were explorers, they were police, they were military. They did everything. It was their responsibility out there on the frontier to handle everything and to be the arm of the government and extend society into unknown regions. Starfleet does that within the show. And I honestly think that as we move forward, hopefully with the extended exploration of our own solar system in space, that that's going to end up happening. We're going to end up having to develop some kind of an organization that fits all of the bills as opposed to having multiple organizations that handle only little bits and pieces of things. It's just, it's the most efficient way to approach it. Yeah, so this in this area, I think, is now when we should put a little bit more of a spoiler alert out there for people because I want to transition for a moment and ask you a couple of questions about what you think of the plot and the characters themselves and maybe even some of the devices and technologies within this new Star Trek Discovery universe and see if you think one if it if it is a good um if it is a good fit for Star Trek because for those who may not you know be really into the sci-fi part of Star Trek they're just into the cultural phenomenon and how we get new great tech ideas from it if you're not into the the sci-fi aspect of it you may not know this series is set about 10 years before uh Kirk and all of those folks would have been on the Enterprise so we're really looking at um an earlier time than we've ever seen except for Enterprise or some of the movies where time travel goes into play, right? But but an earlier time than we've seen except for the Enterprise series. And yet here we are in 2017 with the show starting. We have better special effects than ever before. We have more advanced technology in the real world than ever before. And you have to keep up with entertainment. So I'm kind of curious what you think about the technology, the characters. Oh, is the production crew doing a good job of implementing new ideas and where we should be by the 2250s or are they kind of leaving us hanging with old 1960s visions of the future so it's it's an interesting question because there was a lot of debate about this leading up to discovery amongst fans and uh, you can still find it online if you go dig all over the place on like reddit or other star trek boards um there are those fans who are the old school fans of star trek who want everything to look like the original series you know, they want to go back to the uh, flashing lights and the switches and the data tapes that they plug in to get things done. And the old school viewer like Spock had to scan things. You know, I, for one, as much as I love the original series, I, I don't want to see that again. That's it doesn't interest me. I want to see the take through the lens of our modern technology of what we think the era of Starfleet is going to look like. And I think they have done that here. They have adapted and adjusted the tech, the tech that's familiar to us from the older series in a way that it is being seen through a new lens. And something that I've always actually thought about is that Star Trek can be looked at in many ways as almost a history of the future. And that is, history is being produced at different periods in our own time. 
Yes. And always through the lens of the individual directors, writers, story crafters, and special effects artists that are there in the moment using what they have available to them. So it's almost like looking at, um, if you go back and you look at war movies, let's say, let's say a medieval war movie. They looked very different in the 1930s to the 1950s to the 1970s to today. Mm -hmm. But we don't say, ah, I'm not going to watch that modern day take on Braveheart because I like the way it looked better in the 30s. (laughs) And yet sci-fi fans, especially Star Trek fans, do that. Like, I don't want to see this new thing because it doesn't look right. You know, they have augmented reality and they have virtual reality and they have holograms they're using to communicate with each other. Kirk didn't have any of that. How is all of this going to devolve to what Kirk had? Well, it shouldn't. Right. I mean, you have a great point there. And and it's something I've been thinking about. I've been thinking instead of, you know, the type of movies that you mentioned, I've been thinking about plays. Think about a Shakespeare, uh, one of Shakespeare's original plays, something Shakespearean. You know, of course, it was told in a certain way in the 1500s on stage. You had some wooden props and this, that and the other. And today we can build elaborate CGI backdrops. We can build sets that are real, that look as if the real building is there and full and complete. And so, you you know, you can't look at Hamlet and say, mm, nope, I can I can definitely yeah. tell this doesn't look like a 16th century prop. Yeah, ex- exactly. It 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 shouldn't it shouldn't take away from it. It should only enhance it. I, and I think if you take the right perspective on it, uh, I think it can. Now, I don't want to do any type of breakdown, you know, episode episode by episode, because this is not necessarily about that. But what are you thinking about these characters? We've had a couple of very interesting characters, and I think the two that we should probably correct me if I'm wrong, though, if you have a different opinion, the two I'm most focused on right now are Burnham herself, uh, the disgraced mutineer commander, um, and um, uh, Captain Lorca. Those are the two that I think are having the most interesting play right now. What about you? I agree. They're they're very clearly your main characters. And so Lorca's the captain of the Discovery. Yeah. And uh, um, former Commander Burnham comes to him as a prisoner after uh, being Starfleet's first mutineer on her former ship, the Shinzo. And um, I think it's the Shenzu. My Chinese is very rough as in non-existent. So <laughs> I, I try. Um, but so this commander uh, who is no longer a commander comes to the ship as a prisoner and uh, spoilers all abound here gets offered a position because this ship is like no other. This is a research ship turned military ship. And we have this complex character of Captain Lorca, who is, I guess he's being painted as a warmonger, but it's very clear that he has a lot of depth to him. And it's not that simple. What do you take on this play between, uh, you know, this very rational uh, human raised on Vulcan commander and this, um, studies war captain it's a really interesting dynamic it's two different sides of the same coin i think you know you to to be an effective starfleet captain i think we've seen in the past you have to be able to embody both those sides you have to know when to use force and when to make a stand and fight for what's right but you also have to know when to back down and take the more human approach to things 
Lorca is missing that human approach to things, at least so far in what we've seen. So he far. is all about doing the job, protecting the Federation, protecting the Federation's people, as we saw in episode four, no matter the cost. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Burnham, on the other hand, she she had that Lorca like drive in a moment in episode one and two mm-hmm. where she gave into that desire to use force. And I think when she did that and it didn't go well and she lost her mentor and her best friend in the form of uh, the captain. I think that changed her and I think it made her realize that there's not the, 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 the approach doesn't always have to be an approach of force necessarily and that she should listen to the teachings that she had learned on Vulcan as well as the teachings from Captain um, Georgiou. And I think we're seeing that dynamic right now between her and Lorca. And as, as you know, since we're in the spoiler zone right now, we saw that her approach in episode four was the right approach taking the more human approach and trying to understand the creature they have on the ship and how it connects to the spore drive. She saved the day. Yeah. And without that, they never would have. So I think Lorca has perhaps seen that maybe there is benefit to taking a different approach to things. I think we see as time goes on. Yeah. These two are going to play off of each other very well. And, and uh, you know, outside of the, the real world for a moment for people who are Star Trek fans, I hear a lot of people who say, you know, they're not going to watch the show because they, they won't pay for CBS all access. And I understand that, you know, there are other options that'll be available down the road. You'll be able to, you know, probably purchase a season or this, that, or the other. And then I don't disagree with any of that. And it will most likely, I'm sure, make its way to Netflix or somewhere else at some point in time. But if you're kind of on the fence about it and you're wondering the depth of these characters, the writers are doing an amazing job. And the best way I can describe Captain Lorca right now is he has the depth of soul that Captain Picard had, if you want to relate him to other captains. But he's much more... uh, you know, ideologically in line, and this will show how much of a Star Trek nerd I am, okay. with um, Captain Edward Jellico from the Next Gen episodes Chain of Command Parts 1 and 2, right? He, 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 st- he studied his adversaries. When he's in the war mode, he's all serious, all business, uh, and, and Starfleet regulations be damned. But at the same time, he does have a depth of character there. And I, I just, I really find this... Uh, this to be an interesting character who I think they're going to use a lot of modern day situations and create parallels utilizing his very stubborn nature. You know, I think so too. And I think they're going to do that with a lot of the actual story of discovery as well. Uh, And that's when Star Trek's at its best, you know, when the future and the situations they encounter in the future on a character level or an overall galactic level story level, it's, it speaks the loudest and it speaks the best when it mirrors today. What, what do we need, need to mirror from today? What are the problems that we're facing culturally, societally and business technology? You know, just last episode and on this show, uh, myself and and Chris Ayers, the technical co-host, we were talking about the fact that consumer electronics 
as much as they're progressing, they're very much same old, same old at the moment. And we're getting people, you know, companies consolidating down into these tried and true silos of what they do and what they don't do. What type of inspiration in any one of these realms do we really need from Star Trek right now that that no one else could offer? I think I think the thing that Star Trek can offer and considering the tone that Discovery has, it may take a little while to get there, but I think the thing that it can offer that is missing from a lot of places is, is not really a technological thing, so to speak. It is that thing that has been present through all of Star Trek, regardless of its incarnation, regardless of which ship we're dealing with or which captain we're dealing with, and that is hope for the future. Hope that it will be one of exploration and one of wonder as we strike out into the unknown, as opposed to what we so often see in most of modern science fiction, which is a future that is bleak and overrun by corporations and greed. That's a wonderful sentiment, because if we look at old science fiction, very old, um, late 19th century, early 20th, the idea was about the extension of humankind and the creation of fanciful machines because we were, you know, getting out of that industrial revolution mindset. And then after World War II, um, it goes to this bright, shiny, future positive for the most part. I mean, there were always exceptions, Philip K. Dick being one. Um, it's a shame to see that uh, the um, uh, Blade Runner reboot is not faring so well. I haven't seen it yet either. I mean, like, I didn't even know it was out, quite frankly. Um, but after World War II, we got this shiny, bright new future of, of human harmony. And then sometime, I would imagine, through the 80s and 90s, we started this turn towards the negative. And that really hit in the 2000s, especially. I mean, relate that to the real world. There's a reason for it. Daniel Pink, um, business comment, uh, commentator and uh, and thought leader, he talks about the two, the early 2000s being a lost decade for business, for culture as well, because we were facing two wars and terrorist attacks and, and a global recession and all of these different things. And it just took our view and it turned it negative. And I, and I hope you're right. I hope that we can get a little bit of the optimism for the future back. And we don't need a bright, shiny future, I, I guess, in sci-fi, but it'd be nice to have one to some degree. It certainly would. And, you know, I, I, I think I think Star Trek has always given us that, like I said, and I'm pretty sure we're going to get there with Discovery to some extent that we're going to see some hope. Um, but it might be an interesting rocky road to get there from what we've seen so far. OK, so I, I, I I've made all of the points, I think, that I want to make. And now I just I really will we'll go to the next level. We'll go to not just red alert of spoiler alerts. Let's go to black alert of spoiler alerts. And if you don't know what that is, spoiler, um, I, let's just for the last segment of this, let's just talk about the show itself. What are your thoughts? What's something that you'd like to bring up? What's kind of been on your mind that you haven't had a chance to vocalize or that keeps coming up in conversations about this show, whether hey. it's business related or not? All right, it's totally not business related. I am absolutely loving the depth of story in this show. I had read before it went on the air that they hired a group of writers whose only job 
is to look back into the lore of Star Trek and make sure everything connects properly. They're doing a great job. They are doing a phenomenal job. And I think from everything we have seen in the first four episodes and everything I've seen from the trailers and that that lovely uh, this season on Discovery thing we got at the end of episode one, mm-hmm. that we are seeing uh, without any doubt in my mind the secret origin of Section 31. Yeah, And you brought this to my attention the other day. You were talking about the ship's registry. 1031. It's right there in front of us. And and so Section 31 would have already been created, right? Yeah, Section 31 actually um, came into existence with the writing of the Federation Charter. And so this was that deep, dark, you know, psyops, you know, kind of psyops branch of Starfleet. Yeah, the, the black ops, the blackest of black ops of Starfleet, the mm. ones that do whatever is necessary to ensure the continuance and the protection of the Federation, even if that necessary is highly morally questionable, which it very often is. As Wait, we so, saw when we were, so you're saying they're the CIA? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, perhaps. Mm. Um Maybe that dark organization that exists under the CA, whatever they are. Sure. Maybe we should save that for the conspiracy episode. Um, <laughs> oh, God, we should do one of those. <laughs> so Section 31 was actually introduced to us in Deep Space Nine. And prior to Deep Space Nine, we'd never heard about them before. But since then, they've woven them in through Star Trek lore and Star Trek history, uh, especially in Enterprise. I think we got. I think we maybe got a mention of them in Voyager. And then they popped into Enterprise towards, I think, season three, season four. And don't they come up with a lot of time travel from the 29th century or is that just me? Uh, they do, but I don't think that was connection to Section 31. OK, that was um, that was a whole other story arc that was in Voyager. But we're, we're also finding out a lot about this whole genetic mishap with the Klingons that makes them use human DNA, DNA to repair themselves and all the stuff that's been talked about in other series, right? That's not even a spoiler. Every other well, series has talked about the – or Deep Space Nine uh, talked about the Klingon discontinuity. Well, they did. But the thing is they did it as a joke. In Trials and Tribulations, mm-hmm. it's the episode where they use the, the orb of time to go back into the past and try to protect Kirk and company on the Enterprise during the episode, um, The Trouble with Tribbles. It's a in beautiful episode, gag they have. Yeah, the oh, modern Klingon with the original series Klingon standing yeah. right next to each other. There's the Starfleet officers that are with Worf are surprised that the Klingons look human. Mm-hmm. And Worf says, we don't talk about it. So it's just – it's meant as a one-off gag. Mm-hmm. And I am – I am fairly certain, and this this is from my own personal thought about you know how how writing works for shows, as well as you know things I've heard over the years and read over the years from the the writers and producers of Deep Space Nine. They never intended there to be a deeper explanation. They just wrote that in as a gag to acknowledge that it looked different, and they just wanted to move on because there didn't need to be an explanation. It was just a change in the way makeup is and the change in the way technology works over the years. Mm -hmm. However, then when Enterprise came around, Enterprise did this whole storyline with the Augments, um, which are the people of Khan, and how the virus that they created was used by the Klingons to attempt to create Klingon super soldiers, just like Khan's people, and it went wrong. And that was what has ended up causing us to have the smooth-headed Klingons that look human over the years. Okay, I bought into that. That was 
that was a pretty clever explanation if you had to have an explanation for it. But now we get Discovery, which has introduced a completely different Klingon, one that doesn't even remotely look human. It's humanoid. Right. But they're they're very reptilian, which is interesting. So are we going to are we going to try to find a way to work that in and explain everything? Or is this going to be one of those, you know what, we're just going to throw it to the window. We're going to say these are Klingons now. I, I would imagine they're going to address this. I, I have to imagine that because there has been so much from other Star Trek series and movies that has been reused. The team of writers you've talked about, you know, and, and it hasn't been reused in the sense of self-plagiarism. It's been reused in the sense of continuity. Right. You know, it reinforces who Starfleet is when you hear not just in the what 23rd, 24th century, whatever it is, when you hear we've engaged the Borg. But now when you're back in the the mid 23rd century and you hear we've engaged the Klingons, you're getting a sense that the writers are saying, nope, this is just Starfleet protocol. Yeah, this is how Starfleet handles things. And if they're being that um, detailed in their minutiae, I have to believe that there's some strategy because the makeup would be a lot cheaper to go back and make the Klingons exactly what we expect the Klingons to be from next gen on or really cert- from from the, the original series movies on. Yeah, it's, it certainly would be a lot cheaper. And maybe there is going to be an explanation for it. I'm I, up until we actually saw the the representatives of the 24 houses appear in the first episode. My mind was thinking maybe these were like proto Klingons or something that woke up aboard the ship. But now we've seen that's not the case. And maybe we're going to see that this is just one breed of Klingon. Maybe some of the other houses we're going to encounter down the road will look more like the traditional Klingons and the traditional humans. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, you know, a, a Neanderthal kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. Where and it, it, different species. Who knows? But if we're going to use a war to make parallels to the modern world, this type of strife and conflict and literal war is the Klingon war, the right one to choose or the other war that everyone has been looking forward to so much, the Romulan war, which is also not talked about, you know, no one's really fleshed out what happened and how bad it got. We, we always assumed, I think at least myself as a Star Trek fan, I always assumed that the Romulan war was so much worse than the Klingon war, but, but it looks like discovery may be saying, Nope, this is the big one that defined us. I think this one is the big one that defined Starfleet because it sets up the original series and it sets up the Cold War that's in place between the Klingons and the Federation in the original series, mm. which comes into play over and over and over. Every single time Kirk encounters a Klingon in the original series, it's it's because of what's happened here. It's, a, it's an offshoot of that. The Romulan War, as fascinating as it is, I honestly think from what we know about it so far, it would be boring to watch. Mm. Because it took place over immense distances using subspace radio technologies. They never see each other. And they never actually even ever saw Romulan's ship. Huh. Interesting. So it was more yeah. of a um, – it was a more a high-tech war. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I don't, so I don't think it would be terribly exciting to see on screen. No. and Plus, by setting this just 10 years before Kirk, as opposed to the Romulan War, which was – I might be getting my dates wrong here, but I, I'm pretty sure the Romulan War took place before Kirk was even born. Right, um, right. By setting this 10 years before Kirk, it allows us to better connect the new look of technology 
with Kirk's era. So we can imagine what the Constitution class would look like with this type of technology 10 years from now. Well, and, and, it, and it makes the Kelvin timeline make a little bit more sense as well. The, the, the whole thing is brought together quite well. Um, especially because of the Vulcans and their life long, uh, their, their long lifespans. Yeah, it is. And that, that, that is one thing that I love, by the way, which I've heard some people are confused about this, but it, it, I think it's great. I love that this series is separate from the movie continuity. They right. can have their Kelvin timeline for the movie continuity because they're not going to do anything with that outside of those movies. I love that this has taken us back to the original timeline from the original series. And we know that ultimately what happens here is going to lead into the movies and to next generation and deep space nine and Voyager. Yeah. And then one day, hopefully if it all works out, hopefully we'll move even past Voyager and see what's waiting for us in the 25th century. But I'm not holding my breath because there are so many different stories to tell in the star Trek universe that, I almost you'd have to get a really good crew together and trust them with the development. But that almost seems like that's happened here. Um, Gene Roddenberry's son uh, has has signed on and is a producer here, is he not? I believe he is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that that's quite interesting, (laughs) you know, from my point of view. Actually, on your on your point about uh, Star Trek in the the 25th century and beyond Voyager, Mm -hmm. they're already doing that actually. And they have been doing that for several years. I'm not talking about books or comic books because those aren't really considered to be canon. However, there is almost a secondary level of canon that Paramount has authorized because of Star Trek Online, the multiplayer game. Now, I've heard that is being considered to some degree canon, but it's not official canon, is it? It's not, but they go to the point where – they start to tell the story of what's happening to the Federation and the Klingons and the Romulans, the Borg, and so on after the events of Voyager. It takes place 30 years after the events of Voyager. And I will tell you, if you can get past some of the frustrating gameplay, man, are the stories good. Yeah, that's, you know, I'm more of a passive entertainment type person. And I, I do love to unwind with video games, but that's been difficult for me because. I feel this immense time pressure where I can't just check out for an hour and get the story I want and say, mm, that was good or nah, that didn't meet my expectations and move on. Then you're in one quest after another and then you want to upgrade mm-hmm. your ship. And <laughs> I've, I've found that really difficult for myself and would love to see some of that turned into canon. That would be nice. Now, one of the things that I'll uh, lead us back to to, to close on and and for anyone still with us, hey, first of all, thank you. You've you've made it past our our geek out, but um, there is a payoff. I'm going to translate it back to business for a moment. The Kelvin timeline and this uh, regular timeline are a big point of contention for a lot of people, but I think we forget to some degree why they exist. They exist in part, not fully, because one of the parts is storytelling and where people who have had control of Star Trek at at given times believe the story should go or what story should be told. But the other is because a a while back, um, you know, well after the merger and I think the late 90s, CBS and Paramount split. And right now, the largest investor in both of those, well, Viacom, right, being the parent of Paramount, if I'm correct. I'm going to fact check that after this episode, so I'll put a little note at the end if I'm wrong. 
But the the largest investor for CBS and Viacom is now suggesting that the two merge back together. Um, and Paramount had owned the the film rights for Star Trek. CBS owned the television rights, and that made getting anything produced very difficult. On top of the quagmire that happened after Enterprise was, um, you know, not as as successful as they had hoped, and the next gen movies were not as successful as they had hoped as well. So we we are looking at an interesting time where all of this may in the future be able to come together in a certain set of hands because we may. Uh, I don't know if this would be good or bad. I haven't made a company decision on it yet, but we may end up with a unified CBS and Paramount with a potential new CBS of Icon merger just 20 years after they merged the last time. Well, that would certainly be interesting. Would you be interested in us going forward past Voyager uh, other than video games if that were to happen or where Absolutely. else, where else would you know we go? I'm, I'm interested in seeing any new directions with Star Trek because it's, such a rich, deep, vibrant universe to explore. And you could even go back to the era of Next Generation and create a new show that doesn't have anything to do with Enterprise, much like they're doing with Discovery right now, Mm -hmm. and tell other tales of what was happening in the Federation at that time. And that's the great thing with it. It's, It's wide open. There is a literally a universe full of stories ahead of us. Yeah, and Star Trek, and you know they they first did that really with Deep Space Nine, right? It was supposed to be set on mm-hmm. a planet. They ended up setting it on that uh, space station, Terragnor, mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine, and that that it started out really well with um, uh, Commander Cisco at the time, really loathing Jean Luc Picard because of his involvement as Locutus Aborg when he was again. I'm a Star Trek nerd. You gotta you gotta forgive me, but uh, actually no, I think we're past that. No one has to apologize for being a Star Trek nerd anymore. <laughs> But, but you know, that was an interesting play. Now, another interesting play, and I, I think this truly is my very last thought since we're only a couple of ep- or a handful of episodes in right now, the Orville. Seth MacFarlane over on Fox, a little bit mad he didn't get Star Trek a couple of years ago, timed right with the release of Star Trek Discovery, we get the Orville. What are your thoughts on that? Man, I love Orville. It's- I was surprised by it, actually. I expected to go into it with it being... A, uh, a typical Seth MacFarlane vehicle mm-hmm. where we would have a complete parody of Star Trek that would break it down and make fun of it. And it is not that in any way. We're, we're seeing the product of someone who very clearly grew up on Star Trek, loved Star Trek, and wanted desperately to be a part of it. And he was unable to do so for whatever reasons. So he has used his power and his influence that he gained through all of his other shows and his other experiences to create his passion project. And you can see that passion come through in every single episode. It's telling great stories. It's funny. And it's it's just entertaining to watch. I like to say that it's almost – the true spiritual successor to the original series because it has that dry, corny wit in it that Shatner was so effective at delivering. And, um, you know, even though it's completely different, obviously a different universe, it, it almost feels like what if Star Trek were real? And I mean, really real, you know, if yeah. people, people, humans were still humans in the future. Uh, and we, we sure we're going after improving ourselves, but at the end of the day, we're still sarcastic jerks. 
you know, that's <laughs> that's what the original series would have felt like. Yeah, we, we definitely are seeing that. We're not seeing the uh, always serious, almost always perfect characters of Next Generation. Which which was my favorite. Nothing against it. But yeah, me either. I love Next Generation. But I think that's true that those types of things only happen at unique points in time. Yeah. And that type of measured diplomacy that Picard had is correct for certain situations. But other times you got to have the punch him in the face Kirk. Other times you have to have the the warring Lorca. Other times you have to have the super bright, let's meld the crews together Janeway. You have to yep. have them all. Um, I, I'm still, I, I skipped Cisco there because I'm not sure how I feel about him being the emissary. Mm-hmm. I was never super comfortable with that. But I mean, it takes all types is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. And uh, last thought on Orville, I agree with you that in some ways it's a spiritual successor to the original series. But I actually think that Orville is the true spiritual successor to Galaxy Quest. <laughs> the Star Trek TV series that never was that should yeah. have been. And aren't, are they, is, it, is this true? They're coming back together to make a sequel? I don't know. I hadn't heard that, but that would be awesome. I've heard are. something about parts of that crew, and I'm gonna we're we're gonna have to look that up. If anybody knows, let us know. Go to uh, the multi new media page, multinewmedia.com, episode eighty five. Click on the comment section and let us know, or just email feedback at multinewmedia.com. I'd love to know if you know something about that. I've heard it, but I don't know if it's true. That'd be great. I don't know. That would be great, but unfortunately, it means we shall not have Alan Rickman speaking by Grubthar's hammer. That's very true. Garrett, thanks for joining me today. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm so glad we can take something as fun as Star Trek and relate it back to the real world. This this is just absolutely wonderful, and I'd love to have you on in the future for some data analysis topics. Hey, man, I'm all for it. This was a lot of fun. It was a really nice, it was a really nice chat and a really nice, with nice way to break up the day and uh, just have a good, fun conversation. Same here. So thank you very much, and I'll talk to you soon. Yep, talk to you soon, Chase. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.